the teaching series coming out of Luke, and uh, we're kind of in a series within a series. Today begin, uh, we begin a new teaching called Overjoy, and it's going to come straight out of Luke chapter 1, so if you brought your Bibles, you can open them uh, to Luke chapter 1. Um, I need to spit my gum out. Sorry. When it comes to Christmas, uh, when it comes to nativity scenes, uh, uh, Christians, we're, we're strangely selective. Uh, because we have four accounts of the life of Christ. We have, uh, we have four gospel accounts. But we're pretty picky uh, when it comes to our nativity scenes. So uh, if we uh, wanted to celebrate Christmas only using Mark's gospel, uh, we would celebrate Christmas by the baptism of Jesus. In the beginning of his ministry, for, for Mark's gospel considers Jesus' birth so highly unimportant that he didn't even mention it. Doesn't even bring it up. He jumps straight to Jesus' baptism in ministry. Uh, if we wanted to use John's gospel as our, as our Christmas guide, John seems to uh, rewind too far. He goes all the way past Jesus' birth, all the way back to the very beginning. It literally begins with the words of Genesis, in the beginning. And so if we use John's gospel as our Christmas guide, our, our nativity scene may look like six days of creation. If we use Matthew's gospel, uh, it would begin with a giant uh, uh, um, family tree as he begins with an incredibly long genealogy. Matthew also includes the tale of a tyrant king, some, uh, some wise men, a genocide, and an escape to Egypt. And Luke's gospel is unique as well. His telling is the story of not just one miraculous birth, but of two. Let's look at it together. Beginning in verse 5 of uh, Luke, we're just going to kind of walk through uh, these passages together. He begins, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah are uh, from the priestly tribe of Aaron, and uh, it would have been considered especially pious uh, for, for two people from the, the same priestly line to marry each other. But there's a black mark on their uh, nearly spotless record, right? They are, they are uh, both from the priestly tribe. They're righteous in God's eyes. They, are, they follow all of the commandments and regulations, there's something missing. Childbearing was viewed uh, as the highest calling of a woman. And infertility uh, would have brought about a social stigma and shame and disgrace. And despite their prestige and despite their devotion to God, they are childless. No one to carry on their name. The story drips uh, 
with uh, images from the Old Testament, and, uh, and that's a good thing because God has a history of intervening in the lives of various women so they could have children. Let's continue. In verse 8, it says, one day Zechariah was serving God in the temple. His order was on duty that week, and as was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. All right, so a couple of things are happening here. Um, uh, there are 24 priestly orders, all descended from the line of Aaron. Aaron had uh, 24 uh, um, children, 24 sons, and the priestly lines all descended from them. And so uh, the long story short is there's way more priests than there is work for priests to do. So they have different times, different seasons that uh, different groups of priests are on call. Uh, uh, they're on order, and they would travel to Jerusalem, and they would spend a week working at the temple. But even when uh, Zechariah's priestly tribe, Abijah, comes, and he comes to work at the temple, there's still far too many people to do the jobs that are there. And so they cast lots, uh, which is kind of like a... Uh, rock, paper, scissor of the Holy Spirit, like, hey, God, give us some clear direction to here. Who, who are you going to pick? Um, who's gonna, whose turn is it going to be to work in the temple? And, uh, and this is really fascinating because it, it's almost like an Esther story because it has this whole, this whole aura of as it happened. As it happened, Zechariah <laughs> wins rock, paper, scissors. It becomes his turn. He, the lots are cast in his favor. It becomes his turn to serve in the temple. Now, now think about it. His whole life is dedicated to this one idea, to this, to this priestly order. But a priest may go their whole life and never serve in the temple. This is Zechariah's big moment. It's his lucky day. He's won the lottery. And uh, what he gets to do is he gets to go not in the, the most holy place of the temple, but he gets to be in, the, in as close as anyone can get. He goes into the holy place, and twice a day he would go in to burn the incense. So the incense, uh, God has this thing, uh, especially in the Old Testament, uh, this thing about the uh, aroma. Uh, the incense is supposed to... Uh, in a way, kind of uh, get God's attention. It, it's kind of like when you're laying in bed and your wife's cooking bacon. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that it just hits you and you're like, oh man, that, that's the same thing of, of uh, the sacrifices and everything. The incense is what carry that and, and get God's attention. And uh, Zachariah has won the lottery. He gets to be that guy. And twice a day, he gets to go in and burn incense. Let's keep going. In verse 10, while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. And while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. The angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son. And you are to name him what? Again, we have this incredible scene, an Old Testament scene, uh, very much like uh, the scene with Daniel. Here Elisha is, he's in the holy place all by himself, taking on the duties of the priest, he's won the lottery, and an angel 
appears to him. And his reaction is consistent with the reactions of everyone in Scripture of <laughs> fear and extreme discomfort followed by a normal sequence of events of saying, don't be afraid. And then he gets news of the most unexpected kind. I love what it says in verse 13. It says, God has heard your prayer. What prayer? What prayer would have been on the heart of Elizabeth and Zechariah more than any other? You will have not just a child, but you'll have a son, an heir, and you are to name him John. Let's keep going. This son of yours will have a great, uh, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Keep going. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom. I love this description of John and what he will do. It says that uh, he must never touch wine or alcohol. He'll he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Maybe that's the reason that uh, even before he's born, John will jump in his mother's womb at the sight, at the sound, or, uh, not the sight, but the sound of another expectant mother. And Malachi and other uh, Old Testament prophets predicted that God would send Elijah before the time of God's salvation. And, and here Luke pays homage to that, says, oh man, this guy, he's going to have the power of Elijah. And he will prepare the people for what's to come. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Let's keep going. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure <laughs> this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. How can I be sure? The angel uh, reveals his name, says, I am Gabriel. Uh, it's one of the, the two angels mentioned in Scripture by name. Do you know what the other one is? Bible trivia? Michael. Gabriel and Michael. And Gabriel <laughs> is a no-nonsense character, right? He said, uh, who are you to question me? Because I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But since you didn't believe... 
you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. Really, the Greek there, we're a little bit, we're not 100% sure. It, it, it could be silent. It could mean deaf. It, it could be mean silent and deaf. Either way, Gabriel says, my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Let's keep going. I know we're doing a lot of scripture. Stay with me. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. And when he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. And when Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became, surprise, 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 pregnant. And she went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. How kind the Lord is. Let's fast forward a little bit. If you move forward to verse 57, the story continues. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son and when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. Isn't that what Gabriel said would happen? Let's keep going. And when the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision, circumcision ceremony. They, wore, they wanted to name him Zachariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, 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 no. His name is John. And I love this in scripture. They, they all exclaimed together. What? <laughs> there is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father. Maybe that's because he couldn't hear as well as speak. They used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. And he motioned for a writing tablet. And to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. And instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. I love this story. Do you love it? Man, I've got to, I've got to kind of marinate in this teaching all week, and uh, it, it's really got to me. There's a couple of thoughts, a couple of things I want to share just about this teaching, and it won't take long. Um. Maybe with, uh, with Christmas trees and manger scenes, uh, maybe with uh, uh, Advent candles and uh, different holiday decorations, maybe some of you are wondering, why in the world are we talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth? Like, why are we talking about John? It's Christmas for Pete's sake. We should be talking about Mary and Joseph. When are we going to talk about Jesus. And that's kind of actually the perfect Advent question. And if you are in that place, if you're feeling that way, then Luke has you right where he wants you. Luke begins with a prequel birth to build in us a sense of anxious anticipation. Advent is a season of expectation. But what are we to expect? What are we to anticipate? What does Advent really mean? I think if you look at a couple of things from this story, 
from the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and John's birth, it, it prepares us in some really unique ways for the season of Advent. Because Advent in, in this story means answered prayers. Put yourself in the shoes of Zechariah and Elizabeth just for a moment. They're very old at this point. But how many times do you think they prayed for children? How many times did that prayer cross their lips? Some of you have maybe been in that place. How long had Elizabeth said, just, God, if you would grant just this one request. And we know they're very old, so we know that they've been waiting a long time. But I think if, if I put myself in Zachariah and Elizabeth's shoes, there was probably a, like, a, like a, a, a place they got to, a point they got to where they stopped saying that prayer, right? You know, when they were 20, they're saying the prayer. When they're 25, they're saying the prayer. When they're 35, okay, we're praying the prayer. But when they turn 45 or 55, Somehow that prayer, somehow that request had, had, had faded away, had, had faded into memory. It had, it had become the impossible request. Zachariah and Elizabeth, really, they, they mirror the people of Israel in that way. Because Israel had been praying for a Savior. They'd been praying for a Messiah. Man, it had been their hope for a long time for one that would come and establish a new kingdom and set things right and, and, and turn the, the, the Romans out and, and let them build a brand new kingdom. Israel had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. They'd been praying for a long time. And I wonder if it was a prayer many had begun to give up on. Have you ever had that experience, like your prayer goes unanswered for so long that then you kind of just begin to give up on it? You forget it. You, you, you bury it in a deep place inside of you because it seems impossible. But remember what Gabriel said. Maybe the first message of Advent is... God has heard your prayer. You think Zechariah wondered which one Gabriel was talking about when he said that? Well, he not prayed for a lot of different things. Was he curious at all? Or did something old and buried and hidden, something that Zechariah had given up on himself, did that suddenly come to life again. I think Advent is a season for us to revisit some of those prayers. Prayers we've buried and maybe maybe we've we've wanted to leave behind because we've seemed like it's been unanswered prayers that that have gone uh, gone on and on without any seemingly response. I think Advent is a season of answered prayers. 
at least the anticipation, the expectation that our prayers will be answered. Maybe some of you have been praying for family members. Uh, there was a time in my life that even uh, my, my brother and I, I've got a great family, but there was a, a time where my younger brother and I were uh, uh, estranged is the nice way to put it. <laughs> um, we didn't talk. Um, if we did talk, we fought. He went to some places that I was unwilling to go, and I went to some places he was unwilling to go. And for years, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to say there was this great distance between us. Um, we were brothers by, by birth, but, but by nothing else. You have family members like that? You have relationships like that? I see people uh, even spend some time with people that are in marriages like that. They're together yet somehow distant and apart. I know some of you as parents have uh, had the relationship of, of the prodigal child. <laughs> some of you right now are live it, living that story in really uncomfortable, uncomfortable ways. Like a, an anxious parent, you're, you're sitting waiting for the return. You're waiting for a relationship that's been broken to be restored maybe it's a prayer you've given up on and I love that advent especially the advent of John is a season of restoration it's a season of reconciliation look what it says in verses 16 and 17 I love this kind of sequence of verses look what the the advent of John the birth of John will bring he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And I love this verse. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And I think that speaks to us, that speaks to our relationship with God, of, of God's heart is again, I don't know if it was the incense or what, but God's heart is again in this season turned towards his children who have been rebellious. We again move to this place where we can accept the wisdom of God in our own lives. That's what the season of Advent is about. But I, but I don't think it happens just between God and us. But I think it's a season for this to happen in our own lives, in our own relationships. And, and you guys know you have strained relationships with parents and siblings. This is a season for our hearts to be turned towards each other. It's a season maybe to come back to those prayers we've prayed for, for our children to return, for our children to quit being so rebellious. It's a season for children to come back and receive the wisdom of the godly. Advent is a season of answered prayers, a season of, of reconciliation. It's a season where, where something happens and our hearts begin to turn and change. 
Finally, Advent is a season of joy. In verse 14, it says, uh, the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Luke is the, uh, the gospel of joy. Uh, Luke talks about joy more than any other gospel. He uses this word joy to the fullest extent. He comes back to it again and again and again. Literally, Luke is the gospel of overjoy. Joy like Christmas morning. Joy like family relationships restored. Joy like a newborn child. This is the promise of Advent. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I just want to share a few final thoughts with you. The name John, you know what the name John means? So it would have been really uh, the, remember when uh, Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John, and the crowds of people say, what? What do you mean, John? That's not a family name. That's not tradition. That's not our custom. This is not how things work. But Gabriel says, no, 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 his name will be John. And it's not until his father says his name, proclaims him, names him, that his gift of speech returns to him. The name John means gracious, or it means the Lord has shown favor. Answered prayers is the advent John's birth announces. Reconciliation and hearts turned once again to each other is the advent John's birth announces. Great joy is the advent John's birth announces. John's birth is the advent of God's gracious favor. And in a way unique to Luke, Luke says, you think John's birth is something? You haven't seen anything yet. Because John, as great as he is, as popular as he is, John has his own disciples. The, uh, even Paul runs into people who are groups who have been discipled and taught by John. John is incredibly popular. As exciting and as important as John's birth is, John is not it. He isn't the chosen one. He is the precursor. John is the, the, the pre-birth. He's the, the pre-game show, the forerunner. And his job is to prepare the way for the one. John is not the name by which we may be saved. But there is another. There is one yet to come. And everyone that calls on his name will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of, of communion and response. We'll give you a 
chance to do a couple of different things. We've got communion stations set up around the room. Uh, this is our tradition, something we do every week. We think it's, uh, we think it's really important to take the body and the, the blood of Christ to, to unite yourself, to unite your will, to submit your will to Christ again. To maybe as you take that bread and as you take that cup, don't just look to the past, but look to the future. Advent has future goggles on. It is anxiously anticipating the return of Christ, a return that he promised. So I invite you to take this time, to enter into this time of communion. But also, if there's a chance for us to talk more with you, uh, maybe you've experienced some brokenness. Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit is moving to soften some rebellion in your heart. Maybe you've denied Christ and denied this whole thing and kind of kept kept the whole thing at arm's length for a long time. Maybe something in you today was softened, ready to, like I said, let go of some of that rebellion to accept the wisdom of God. Maybe you're ready to give your life to Christ, to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and make that commitment in baptism. And we're here today to receive you, to receive that. And each of you can respond by once again turning your hearts to another. To celebrate, to celebrate Advent and all that it means and all that it encompasses by maybe revisiting some of those prayers you've given up on. Those prayers you've waited a long time for. And, but, but deeper than that, as you enter into this time, into this space of response, who is it? What relationship can your heart be turned to? Like a father turning his heart to his children. Maybe there's some softness in you to reach out one more time to restore a relationship that's been broken and damaged, to seek reconciliation, to pray for it. Let me say a prayer for us, and I'll dismiss us to this time. Father God, we love you. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. God, I love your word. I love what you do in this, uh, in this passage. Here we are. We open Luke. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to read about Jesus. We want to read about his son. And Luke says, okay, let's talk about John. God, I pray that it wakens something in us, something uh, that's exciting and good. I pray, God, that we would revisit uh, our, our trust in you with our prayers. God, I pray maybe this morning that we would receive a new confidence that you have heard our prayers. But they won't go unanswered. Father God, may our hearts be turned. May, may rebellion that, that we've seen, may it be softened. And Father God, let us enter into a season of joy, a joyful expectation, a joy that is that that hits us like a warm blanket, a joy that that puts a smile on our face when we think of you and think of what is to come. Father God, let us. Uh, Advent reminds us not to just live for this moment, but to know that there is some future moment that is far greater than this. 
Father God, this, uh, this season is about you. This is about your son, Jesus. God, we pray for his return, and we anxiously look forward to it. And we look forward to it in the way that, uh, that John proclaimed. Let us, let us prove by the way we live, Father God, that, that we are looking to your return. Let it begin now here in us. Father God, we love you. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen. I invite you to stand and enjoy a time of communion together.